You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a 40-year-old Englishman who was senselessly murdered by someone he considered a friend. Years after his murder, his family wonders why this so-called friend chose to take a life. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, Please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend of the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam, or you can find us on Facebook by searching for the murder of my family. And you can also listen to the show for free on the Spreaker app and even interact with me by commenting on episodes that I can read and respond to your comments. If you'd like to help support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early and ad-free episodes of the show, or bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include stickers, thank you cards, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Alexis Cook and thank you to all the supporters that help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Michael Scardafield was born in Portsmouth in southern England on April 17, 1975, to Holland and Stephen Scardafield. He was her first child, and he went on to have three children of his own, Lucy, Poppy, and Michael Jr. At the time of his murder, he was in a relationship with the mother of his two youngest children, Donna. Sadly, Michael Jr. was born after Michael's death, so he never met his father, who he was named after. Michael was great with technology, helping family and friends with tech support, 
and downloading programs. He was given the name Milky by friends and family, and it stuck. On May 30th, 2015, 40-year-old Michael was hanging out with a friend of his, Martin Birchall, at his apartment in Stoke-on-Trent. For some reason that night, 28-year-old Birchall used the strap of Michael's own bag to kill him in his home, choking the life out of him. Birchall tried to leave the house and was seen by a witness on Waterside Drive in Newstead around 4 in the morning. So when Michael was discovered dead, police didn't have to look very far for a suspect. The witness actually heard Birchall utter, I think I've killed Milky. After he was arrested for the crime, Birchall would claim that it was an accident. It had been a misunderstanding. His version of events was that he and Michael had been drinking vodka late into the night when Michael fell. Birchall claimed that Michael hit his head on the floor when he fell, and that he tried to help him up, using the strap of a bag to do so. But it was a pretty flimsy story. News of Michael's death devastated his family. According to Portsmouth.co.uk, upon hearing of his older brother's death, Eugene Scarterfield said, No, not Michael. Not Michael. He was pulled over to the side of the road on the phone with his mom, listening to the sound of her piercing screams as she gave him the horrible news that his oldest brother, Michael, had been murdered. Eugene told the news outlet, It didn't seem real. It couldn't be. But sadly, it's a nightmare that he would never wake up from. After a trial in February 2016, Martin Birchall was found guilty of murdering his supposed friend, Michael Scarterfield, and for this he received the sentence of a minimum of 18 years in prison. Birchall later tried to appeal his sentence, viewing the jury's verdict as unsafe. Here in the U.S., we have the right to a fair trial, which is why defense lawyers exist. They ensure that nothing happens during a trial that could impact the verdict's fairness, validity, rightfulness, or safety. An unsafe verdict would include a wrongful conviction, as well as any verdict that was reached by a biased juror or during a trial where a defendant had ineffective counsel or evidence was improperly admitted. So while we don't really hear the term here in the U.S., most of us are actually familiar with what it means. But Martin Birchall's conviction was anything but unsafe. His conviction for the murder was actually so sound that the judge ended up adding an additional 28 days to Birchall's time to be served before he could attempt to gain parole. The time was added because the appeal attempt was totally without merit. The judge said during Birchall's sentencing, you were convicted very quickly on overwhelming evidence. The nature of the crime proves that there was also just no way this was an accident, with the judge making it clear to Birchall that he had time to think about what he was doing while he strangled Michael to death, and this was more than enough time to make the choice not to stop. The judge sternly told Birchall, the length of time it must have taken you for you to kill him gave you adequate notice of what you were doing. It was clear that Birchall intended to kill his friend Michael, but he never really made clear why, besides this flimsy story of trying to help him up with a strap around his neck. To this day, Michael's family don't have the answers they've been searching for. Michael's mother's birthday, the 29th of May, was never the same again. Because of Birchall's actions, it's now and forever the day before the anniversary of her son's murder. Eugene Scarterfield said, My mom is the strongest woman I know. I know she cries behind closed doors, and she was on her hands and knees at Mike's grave. 
Moved to do something to honor his late older brother, Eugene Scarterfield created a Facebook page called Life After Murder Manslaughter. The creation of the page was actually prompted by a feeling he had when he woke up on what should have been the day Michael turned 43, April 17, 2018. That day he woke up and wrote about the impact Michael's murder had on his mother, sisters, niece, and his dad. After Michael was senselessly killed by Birchall, all three of his sisters were diagnosed with fibromyalgia, a medical condition defined by the presence of chronic, widespread pain, fatigue, and cognitive symptoms, lower abdominal pain or cramps, and depression. Eugene went on to publish a book called A Tortured Gift, Words After Murder, in May of 2020. The book's available on Amazon, and I highly recommend that you read it. He poured his heart out, writing about what he thought and how he felt after Michael was murdered. Though it wasn't a biography of Michael's life, it was a way for Eugene to continue Michael's legacy. Eugene now raises funds for the organization SAM, S-A-M-M, Support After Murder or Manslaughter. He once took the Three Peaks Bike Challenge, a 226-mile ride to fundraise for SAM. He's also done a 100-mile walk for fundraising. Eugene told the press reader, it's all a way of keeping his brother's memory alive. He added that talking with people who have gone through similar things to you is such a big help. And after a senseless loss like the one he experienced, he'd urge anyone to get in touch with organizations like Sam if someone's experienced the murder or manslaughter of a loved one. I sat down with Eugene Scarterfield to discuss his brother's life and tragic death and the aftermath and toll that it's had on his family. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Every Plate, America's best value meal kit. While most meal kits come with a premium price tag, Every Plate offers delicious dinners that won't break the bank. Every Plate's quality ingredients come carefully packed and pre-portioned, helping you save money and reduce food waste, like that bag of mixed greens you throw out every week. As a result, Every Plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping, making it the easiest way to eat affordably. Choose between 17 recipes that change each week and swap proteins, veggies, and sides to your liking. What sets Every Plate apart from the competition is that you get great food shipped to your door at a great price. At first, I was skeptical, thinking meal kits might be expensive. But now I'm convinced you can get the same deliciousness at a much lower price. Best of all, every plate cuts out trips to the grocery store and stressful meal planning. So you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. My wife and I recently tried the Sriracha Pork Stir Fry, and it was amazing. And with the money we saved, we took the kids out for ice cream. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you can try EveryPlate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY179. Get started with EveryPlate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY179. That's up to $104 value. Hi, Eugene, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your brother Michael's case. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. I'm going to ask you the very first question right out of the gate is some of the articles I read about your brother said he had the nickname Milky. How did he get that nickname? Well, when when we was young, there's a, there's a popular candy bar over here called the Milky, the Milky Bar. And the advert advertisement for that on television was a was a young a young boy dressed up in a cowboy outfit, 
and he had the blue eyes, the blonde hair and glasses and yeah, my my brother had a striking resemblance for him, so that's kind of how that uh, that come about. So he got it pretty young then, and it stuck. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it was only uh, only young when he was first called it. Was it pretty much uh, the case of everyone that he, his friends, family, everyone just calling him Milky instead of Michael? Yeah, it was more. It was more friends. Uh, as a family, we did we tend to call him Mike. Okay. Um, so the Milky thing kind of, yeah, that was more of a friendship thing. Yeah. Well, if you can, can you tell us a little about your brother and, uh, what was he like? What was he into? Mike was, um, oh, he was just the most genuine, kind, loving, caring sort of person you could wish to meet. Um, he wanted to be there for everyone. If anybody had a problem, he wanted to be, you know, the, the shoulder to cry on or the, year to talk to and um mike would have changed the world one person at a time if he could um you know if you turned up on michael's doorstep and you were hungry and he only had one tin of beans in the cupboard he's getting out two spoons that's mike that's the kind of person he was just loving kind caring considerate compassionate um so yeah when something like this happens it's 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 a shock Sure. It's a, it's a shock. And were you and your brother close? Were you? Uh, did you hang out a lot, see each other frequently? Uh, we lived in different parts of the country. Michael moved to a different part of the country to to be with his partner at the time, Donna. Um, so Mike would always travel down on family occasions, you know, especially if it was mum's birthday, Christmas, uh, you know, those kind of popular holidays that we have over here in this country. Our birthdays were only seven seven days apart with our sisters, twin sisters. Their birthday was in the middle of our birthday, so he'd tend to come down for those. Um, typical typical siblings, typical brothers growing up. You know, we didn't always necessarily see eye to eye, but as we grew into into adults and into men, and obviously our, our bond, got, um, bond got stronger and our respect for each other got stronger as well. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, he was in a relationship. He had three children. Um, how old were they when he was killed in 2015? Lucy, his oldest daughter, she would have been 19. I'm trying to think of the top of my head. Um, Poppy was only six or seven. Uh, no, younger than that, four. Uh, Michael Jr. wasn't even born. Michael had only just found out he was going to be a father again before being murdered. Yeah, and that's that's one of the tragic things was he didn't even get, get to meet his uh, third child, and that's uh, one of the just sad things. We, we talked about a little bit before we started recording about the ripple effects that something like this has. Obviously, friends, family are affected, but here's a a child because of this that will never meet his father. Um, and it just proves that the there's just a ripple effect that it affects not just the, the person that dies or their family. It, it's, it's everyone down the line, you know, their friends, people that they interacted with. And in this case, you know, his, his child. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that I've um, sort of been trying to highlight since Michael was murdered is, is the ripple effects of murder and manslaughter. And it's not just a case of um, once that perpetrator 
gets handed down that sentence, it doesn't end there, especially for the family. Um, our, you know, we, we as a family, we serve the whole life sentence. You know, we don't get day release, we don't get parole, um, there's, we don't get rehabilitation. You know, it's us, us. We'll, we'll serve the whole life sentence in, in our minds for the rest of our lives. It's yeah. not as, um, as black and white as some people think, and, you know, people will give off the cuff remarks, like, well, he's in jail now, so you've got your justice, you can move on. And it's, it's not that simple. Yeah, and it doesn't bring your brother back either way. No. No. Let's, if we can, let's go back to the day when your brother was killed. Can you tell us uh, how things sort of unfolded that day, what led to his death, as you understand the details from police and from the court proceedings and stuff? So we we, we was under the impression that Mike was around a friend's house. Um, There was a group of them there. Uh, the friend who owned the property um, had to go and do shopping or you know, something like that. So he said, everyone's going to have to leave. Um, the perpetrator was there as well. My brother, like I said, my brother wanted to get on with everyone, wanted to see the best in everyone. So he invited this guy back to his Mike's place. Um, two of them walked in and one walked out. Um, and he murdered my brother in his own front room. The reasons why we don't know. He changed his story um, a few times. Um, we essentially know what he did and how he did it, but we don't know why. And like I said before, my brother didn't have a confrontational bone in his body, so there wouldn't have been an argument. There wouldn't have been um, any reason for falling out, as far as I'm concerned. My brother didn't have no defensive wounds, which I would expect him to, because he wasn't, like I said, he wasn't confrontational. He didn't, he didn't like fighting. Um, that just wasn't him. That wasn't how he was or lived his life. So we don't know. Hmm. We don't. We don't know. We haven't been given an accurate account of what happened. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but it was your mom that first got the news that he was uh, dead. Is that correct? Yeah, like I said, Mike was living in a different part of the country. Um, uh, the police turned up at my mum's house. My mum was actually at my sister's, but my brother's eldest daughter, Lucy, was there. She answered the door to the police. Um, they didn't tell her. Lucy phoned my mum, said the police are here. Um, and then obviously my mum come home, and that's when she was given the news. Mm. And that's got to be horrible for a mother to hear that her son is not just dead, but he's been killed in in this kind of manner. Yeah, yeah. And how yeah. Did, how did she take it? Was she uh, obviously because she's still got to turn around and notify the rest of your family that this happened, which must have been um, you know a whole other ordeal for her to go through. Was she able to? to accomplish that and get a hold of all of you and let you know what had happened? Yeah, and I think this was the thing for my mum. It was getting hold of um, Michael's siblings and obviously her children to get them, to get us all round. Um, Michael was murdered on the 30th of May um, and she found out on the 31st. So the 30th of May is actually my cousin's birthday who died when she was six of cystic fibrosis. 
Um, and I was actually on my way to the cemetery to take flowers down to the cemetery when my mum called um, to tell me. And um, how did you process that? You know, again, your brother's not, it wasn't a car accident. It wasn't an illness. Someone had taken his life. How hard was that well, for you to accept and, and, and realize that was what happened? I didn't, I didn't, she phoned to tell me that Michael had died, but she didn't say how. She didn't tell me how until I actually got to um, to my mum's house. But just that instant that my brother was dead just made me feel sick. I instantly started crying, um, couldn't breathe, um, struggled to process, and I just kept on saying over and over, no, mum, not Michael, not Michael, no, mum, not Michael. And that's, that's all I could say. Um, and eventually, obviously, got myself to go, together enough to you know, drive to my mum's. And it was only then that you know, I found out how. And this was uh, sort of, um, you didn't, I guess you didn't know all the details again. He's living in a whole different uh, area, but... This this friend of his that uh, murdered him, uh, this Martin Birchall person, was it a good friend of his? Did anyone in your family or among his circle know him well? Was he close with your brother? No, no, he was he was. Michael knew him, knew of him, but I wouldn't say they were best friends, or even close friends. Um, he was a friend of a friend. And so you've got to, as a family, sort of get your head around this, that this has happened. You've got to plan out, you know, a, a funeral, but you also have to deal with this uh, interaction of with the police and and, and arrest and, and that kind of stuff. How much, uh, I mean, how difficult was it to get through all of that to eventually get to, okay, let's turn the page and, and look at this person that's responsible uh, receiving the justice uh, that they deserve to for, for taking your brother's life. Yes. You, you grow up watching TV. You grow up watching, you know, the likes of NCIS and CSI and over here you've got the bill and, you know, these various police programs, murder programs. And in your head, you think this is how it, this is real life. This is how it works out. And it's just not the case at all. So you get all these ideas in your head of how things go, and it doesn't go that way. But at the same time, you feel like you're a part of a TV show. You feel like you're watching yourself through a TV screen. Um, I, I personally hit alcohol very hard. I drunk a lot. Um, so a lot of those early months, quite a blur. Um, he was he was arrested the same day. So we didn't have to wait for that um, to happen. We didn't have to sort of worry or wonder if he was going to be caught, because he was caught. Yeah, this so wasn't... it's more a case of, you know, going up to the other part of the country to see Michael in the hospital mortuary. Um, 
the, the, the most difficult thing, I think, especially for mum, was how long she had to wait to bury her son. How long, how long was that? Um, it, it might not seem like a long time. I think it was two months, three months. But to us, or to my mum especially, it was a long time. She wanted her son home. And she couldn't have him home because, you know, the defence had to do their autopsy and the prosecution had to do their autopsy. So Michael's body was being pulled apart. Oh. And obviously mum just wanted, just even that alone, knowing that your child and my brother has become this piece of evidence they've opened him up and they've done their autopsies and it just makes you sick to your stomach we couldn't have him back whole Yeah. even when we got his body back they kept hold of his brain and his heart so you were able to finally bring him home lay him the rest and then you sort of had to pivot to okay this this person that did this, uh, we have to now face him in, in court. And this was never really a mystery. He, as you mentioned, he was arrested the same day he was there. According to some people, he said something under his breath that, you know, I think I have, I think I've killed Milky. Um, I think he was reported to say, so he was arrested pretty quickly, but you still had to go through the ordeal of going through a, a legal battle. And I, I assume, you know, there's a little bit of difference between uh, um, the UK's uh, court uh, proceedings and here. There's some similarities, but some differences. How long a process was that part getting through court and and going through a trial? Well, you, you, over here, you have your plea case and management is where you go and enter your plea. You know, guilty or not guilty, and that got postponed six times. Um. Then he tried to say that he wasn't um, mentally well enough. Um, so they had to do a full psych evaluation on him. Um, just it turned out there was not, actually nothing wrong with him. Um, so from, again, it might not seem like a long time, but when you're in that moment, um, Seconds can feel like days. The, Michael was murdered, like I say, in the May, and the trial was in the February the following year. Um, and I've gone out, like you know, some 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 cases in America. A lot of families are, you know, would love to have something done and dusted that quickly, and the person, you know, put in prison. Hmm. But like I say, at that at that time when you're going through it, it, it just it seemed like forever. Um, and he had gone, he'd walked from court several times for violence offences. Um, so you convince yourself that he's going to get away with it. Even though the, you know, the evidence is massively stacked against him, like you said yourself, um, he, after he did it, he went and told six people, I think it was, six different people that he'd murdered my brother. Hmm. So all the evidence was there, but because he'd walked so many times from court for violent offences, we convinced ourselves that he was going to get away with this one as well. Oh. 
And he didn't get away. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to to serve a minimum of 18 years in prison. Um, again, I, I know the systems are a little bit different here versus there. Was that along the lines of what you were expecting he might get, or were you thinking he might get more time than that? Uh, like I say, it's, 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 it is very different over here. Um, me, personally, I've, I don't think our system has got the right to call itself a justice system because it isn't justice. Um, life for murder is a 15-year tariff. Now, to me, that's not life. You'll go into prison in your 20s and you do 15 years or possibly less on good behaviour, then you've still got a life. Sure. And your brother was relatively young, so he had his whole life ahead of him. Yeah, exactly. The the second you take someone's basic right to life, you should be stripped of all your human rights and you should die in prison. That's how I see it. That's how it should be. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in the different degrees, like first degree and second degree, like we've got murder and manslaughter and diminished responsibility. I don't agree with any of it. If you if you take someone's basic right to life, then you should be stripped of yours. You should die in prison. Sure. And just, you know, through all of that, through trial and stuff, did he ever apologize? Did he ever offer any kind of, um, you know, to, to say he was sorry, to show remorse? Did he offer any of that to your family? No, no, no. He just sat there biting his fingernails and staring at the ceiling. Well, almost like it was a... a a bother to be there in the court yeah huh. and I think because he had walked through court so many times I think in his head he probably thought that he could walk again it was kind of yeah I'll just sit here bide my time and then I'll be on my way once it's all over but obviously that wasn't the case yeah I know there's no such thing as closure uh, in something like this. Your brother never comes back, and and you're always going to have this in your lives. But did seeing him be sentenced and knowing that he was off the streets wasn't going to hurt anyone else, did that help healing in any way for your family? Um, Of of course. Like you say, Mike Mike isn't coming back. it hurts to say that, even now, after seven years, it still hurts to say that. But, but for yeah, to know that he's beyond bars and he can't put another family through what we're going through um, is a form of comfort, shall we say. And and that seven year mark is is coming up. Um, it, it, does it? Does the passage of time help heal this, uh, what you've gone through at all? Does it help it ain't make get any easier? No. No. No, you, you find ways of, new ways of coping with it and dealing with it. The brain doesn't get any easier. It doesn't subside at all. Um, if anything, I, this year, I, I can't put a finger on it why. This year's probably been harder than years that have come before. I found this year really, really difficult. I've really missed my brother this year. You've missed out on a lot of different life events that you, you could have shared over the years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you and your mom have done different appearances on shows. You've done interviews. Um, 
has talking about the case in these different venues helped at all? Uh, and is it hard to keep sort of rehashing and reliving all the details when, when you do that? We do what we do and I do what I do because I don't want another family that are going through it to feel alone and isolated like I did after after Michael was taken. I felt very alone. I felt very isolated. I felt very unsupported. Um, that way I want them to know that they're not alone in their thoughts, feelings and emotions. But at the same time, it can take me, it can take me days to get over it. Once I've done a public talk, you know, public speaking and I've spoke about Michael and, um, and I've gone through it all, it can take me days to get over it. But I do it for good reason. Sure. I do it to help and support other families. And that's, you know, I'm always uh, amazed when I talk to people that have gone through a tragedy like this that turn around and, and find it uh, a way to use it to help other families uh, that are going to be dealing with the same kinds of things. Um, do you give advice? Do you share your experience and, and help people uh, along their journeys often? Yeah, as much as, as much as much as I possibly can. I've probably got about near on 200 people on my social media that have had a loved one taken by homicide. Um, and this, you know, all across the world. So I will try to um, advise the best I can, um, support the best I can. If they've got any questions, I'll answer them openly and honestly. I've written a couple of books, um, which um, hopefully uh, helps, again, helps other families. Yeah. Um, so they don't feel alone. And if you if you would, can you tell us uh, where people can find you on social media in case they have you know they've lost a loved one and they want to reach out to you, or and also tell us a little bit about the books that you've written. Well, as you know, my name is Eugene Scarderfield. I'm as far as I'm aware, I'm literally the only one in the world, um, so it would be too far you know too difficult to find me on Facebook. Uh, I've also got a Facebook page called Life After Murder and Manslaughter where I put a lot of my writings into, um, so people can sort of read them and resonate with them. One of the things that, that got me to do, you know, my first book was the fact that every time I felt something, I'd put it on social media. And the more I did it, the more people sort of resonated with it and got in contact with me. So I decided to put it all into one place, into a book, um, and to put it out there. Um, and hope that others can uh, can get some comfort from it. You know, it's not the story of what happened to Michael. It's how I feel, what what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling um, around around what happened, not the story itself. Um, I wrote um, a couple of years ago. I wrote a, a poem about knife crime, and I put that onto social media. And that got a really good positive feedback, and that's that's what actually got me doing public speaking. I got invited to quite a few places, like um, knife crime events or memorial events, and asked to recite that specific poem. So that's how I kind of went down that route, or how I ended up coming down that route. 
Um, and I carried on with the poetry. So the second book is just poetry. That's all it is. It's just poetry. So it sounds like yeah. a, a lot of this maybe is is a a positive way to release some of what you've got bottled up and you know get it out and also help other people in the process. It is. It is very much so. It is. Um, everything I do, I call Michael's legacy, Michael's journey, because everything's in Michael's name. And Michael, like I said to you before, Michael would, you know, save the world one person at a time if he could. So every time I write something, if it helps one person, then I'm continuing Michael's legacy. Yeah, that's very, uh, very good uh, way to uh, move forward and honor his memory. And and speaking of his legacy, when people think of your brother and they they remember him, what is it that you want them to to think about him or remember about him? I wanted, I wanted to be remembered for who he was, not what happened to him. And I think if you speak to most people that have had a loved one taken by homicide, they'll say the same thing. They want their, they want their loved one to be remembered of, for who they were, not what happened. You know, that's why I always tell the story about Michael and of, um, you know, if he knocked on the door hungry and he had one tin of beans, he's getting out two spoons. That's how I want Michael to be remembered, that. That loving person, that kind, caring person, that giving person, um, the person who he was. I want him to be remembered for who he was, not what happened to him. Because he's always going to be you know, a victim of homicide. It's terrible when you hear uh, people like that, the, the world needs more of or taken away through uh, a tragic and uh, uh, senseless act of violence like this. Um, soldiers room it's difficult yeah and and how is uh the rest of your family uh, you know obviously your, your mom losing a child your your uh, uh michael's children growing up without their father how are, are they all coping and, and dealing you you never quite know from one day to the next, how you're gonna you're gonna feel sad every day. You're gonna feel that loss every day. But sometimes, some days, um, some emotions are more apparent than others. You know, one day it could be anger, another day it could be confusion, denial, acceptance, um, and it's the same for all of us. It's it's a very 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 horrid groundhog day. Um, my my three sisters were all diagnosed with fibromyalgia through the stress of the trauma. So they struggle daily with pain, physical pain, as well as the mental pain and the emotional pain. Um, you know, mum, not only has she had a, you know, her firstborn taken by murder, she's got to somehow try to get through day to day watching, you know, the rest of her children in so much pain and heartache and sorrow. Mm. Um, I quite often have to say to mum that she needs to take herself away, Um, take some time for herself to grieve for herself. Um, You know, we're all adults, the rest of our children, we're all adults. And I think sometimes she just needs to be Helen, grieving mother, and not have to worry about us daily. Yeah, 
Yeah. And it, I think it's pretty clear from everything you're saying that, that you know, despite the seven years going by, it, it doesn't, you know, seem like it really gets any easier and it's something you have to learn to keep on going and, and moving through. Yeah, it's always at the forefront of the mind. So we just need to try and find new ways of um, sort of coping with it and dealing with it. And it's, again, it's a part of the reason why I do what I do. As much as it hurts sometimes, I just want to help as many people as I can in Michael's, um, you know, Michael's memory. Sure. That's a very, very noble thing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show to talk about your work and what you're trying to do to help people. And then, you know, I also appreciate you coming on and, and sharing Michael's story with us. No, thank you very much. I really appreciate you um, having the time to, well, you give me the time to talk. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for, again, for sharing uh, your, what your family's going through and then, you know, Michael's story as well. I want to give, um, if, if you don't mind, to give a mention to, there's a, a Facebook group sure. in America. Absolutely. Um, in America called um, Siblings of Murdered Siblings. Um, very, very good support network there. Very good support network. It's a Facebook group. And that's specifically for for siblings of, of murder victims. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's called siblings of murdered siblings, um, oh. and it's some um, American ladies that run it, and they you know they do a fantastic job. They're very very supportive. It's a great outlet, um, you know. So if you're feeling alone and um, you want to talk to someone, you can just sort of pop on there and just write how you're feeling on there, and it's you know. It's, you get some great support. So you get some great support on there. There's always people were there with friendly advice and comments, and um, so yeah, I can't um, can't praise them enough for what they do. Well, and hopefully, people that can uh, use some advice or need someone to talk to about what they're going through will reach out to them. And I think that brings it full circle that there's, you know, there's no borders. You know, wherever you live, whatever continent you're on, whatever social economical class you're in um there you know something like this is sort of uh it doesn't have borders um this kind of grief and and experience absolutely thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family i'd like to thank sunny landon for writing and research assistance in this episode as we wrap up I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast. It's called Crime Divers. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hey everyone, I'm Laura. And I'm Jill. And we are the hosts of Crime Divers Podcast. We are Scottish sisters who tell each other true crime cases that other hasn't heard of. New episodes are released every Tuesday and you can find us on your favourite podcast platform. So what are you waiting for? Grab your wetsuit and join us as we dive into the world of true crime. But remember, watch out for those sharks! sharks.